Well, good morning, everyone. Open your Bibles to Ephesians, if you would. Woody gave me a small task today. Preach Ephesians. So, so here we are. We're going to do Ephesians today. Actually, I, I preached the entire book of Ephesians. Uh, I think it was 2000. Seven, in the winter or early spring of 2007, the entire book, and it's going to be a little bit different this time, but uh, um, actually it's not, you know, Woody kind of did me a favor, actually. I like to think in terms of big picture and trajectory and what's going on with the passage and things like that, and it's, it's uh, easiest for me, in a sense, to do that with an entire book at a time. Now, Revelation might be a little different, or, you know, Isaiah something enormous like that. But Ephesians, six little chapters, I can kind of get my brain around it for the most part. So uh, I'm excited about this. It's, uh, it's helpful for me. I talk a lot about zooming in, looking at passages in depth and in small detail, and then backing off and looking at the whole big picture and doing that back and forth. And really, that's a big part of what we do in, in Bible study. And so uh, if, if we only spend time looking at the big picture... Well, we get a great idea of the big picture, but we miss a lot of the detail that really helps uh, where the rubber meets the road. But if we spend, on the other hand, if we spend all of our time focusing on the detail, we kind of miss the forest for the trees. And so I like to go in and out and in and out, and that's kind of the way my brain works. And uh, it helps me to, to stay centered in what we're looking at. And so I'm looking forward to our time here today to preach the entire book of Ephesians, or rather to sum it up, because I won't be covering it all again, but... Since that's a big task, let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Lord, we do stand in awe of you. And as we look at Ephesians and we look at what we learn in this great book, what we learn about the grace of God in our lives, where you have taken us from and to, uh, Lord, we do stand in awe of you. It's amazing. It's amazing to think about what you uh, undertook on our behalf not when we deserved it or anything like that. You did it of your own free grace, and that's amazing. And so we praise you. And this morning as we turn to your word, uh, Lord, there are a lot of, uh, we have a lot of ground to cover for one thing, but also there are a lot of things in our lives that might distract us, whether it's the news or whether it's uh, wondering if Erica's had her baby yet and was it a girl and all that stuff, whether it's family stuff that's difficult or whether we're thinking about tragic loss of people or uh, whatever we might be thinking about. Lord, we are here now, and we are here for the purpose of sitting under your word. And so I pray that each of us would set those things aside, good or bad, that we would not fret about those things, that we would dig into what you have for us in your word, and that you would work in our lives, in our hearts, in our wills, in our motives, work down in the deep, dark places of us that we don't even comprehend so that you can do your work in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would do that for us, that you would be honored this morning. I uh, pray that your word would be clearly proclaimed and that you would help us to listen and be sensitive to the speaking of your spirit and responsive when he says to do something. Father, we want to honor you at this time. We want you to be lifted up and Ephesians uh, does that powerfully. And so I pray that you would bless us as we do this morning in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... We've been in Ephesians for several months, and it's not that long a book, and you would think we might have been able to plow through it a little bit faster, but, but like we said, we really like to zoom in and then back off and, and look at a lot of those things. And uh, for us today, as we try and walk through the entire book, we really are going to land on those remaining verses at the end. We didn't skip those. Uh, the last several verses of chapter 6, we're going to land on those and finish with those. But I want to go back over and do a recap of the entire book and, uh, and just kind of help us review because next week is Resurrection Sunday and we're going to move on. And then the week after that, Chris is going to preach. And the week after that, Bob is going to preach. And then we're going to move on to some new subjects. And so we want to figure out how to wrap all of this up and package it up so that we can kind of remember it, take it with us and recap what we've, what we've looked at. And there is a lot in the book of Ephesians. And, and uh, as I, I mentioned earlier on, actually, when we started it, and maybe a couple of other times, particularly on weeks when I'm preaching, 
my habit is to read through the entire book at the start of the day. Read through the entire book and try and get a picture of, of how it fits together. And it's amazing, the more I've done that, uh, and I haven't always been faithful to do that, but I, I try. But the more I've done that, the more different things have jumped out at me. And there are threads that, that I find that I'm amazed I didn't see them the first time because they seem so bright and so vibrant. And, uh, and so I want to cover some of those today. And first off, I want to talk about our spiritual blessings that we have. We have been so spiritually blessed by God. And so I want to start by reading the first, uh, the first couple of paragraphs there. If, you'll, if you're in chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 3 through 14. There is a lot here, and it's powerful. And I can't go into detail on it. We've gone into detail. But we have been blessed by God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And in large part, the rest of the book is unpacking for us what those spiritual blessings are. He's going to do that. But he continues on here. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. It was unknown before. It was unknowable before. And he made it known to us according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Now there is a ton in there, and it starts from before time, and it ends in eternity. And I think it's amazing. And he's unpacking for us right there what some of those blessings are. He chose us to be holy. He predestined us to be adopted as his children. He redeemed us and forgave us our sins in Christ. He made known to us his will to unite all things in Christ. He gave us an eternal inheritance, heaven. And he sealed it with the Holy Spirit as a promise that he would keep his word and that we would refi- finally receive that inheritance in the end. That is comprehensive blessing. That is beginning of, before the beginning of time to eternity kind of blessing. You won't find a greater blessing anywhere in Scripture or anywhere else in your life than these blessings right here. And that, that helps lift me up from my day-to-day life, right? As I, as I fret about certain things or I pray that God would bless me in this material way or in this temporal way or in this kind of small way, not really big picture, right? As I think about those things and they they captivate my mind and they can captivate my days and my weeks and my prayer life. And then I come here and I look at the blessings that God has given us and they're huge. They're cosmic in size. That should lift us up and that should raise me up beyond my struggles and, and, and remind me of this great, great work that God has done on our behalf. And so we are spiritually blessed with salvation from beginning to end. And it's incredible. If you're ever having a bad day and you want to be encouraged and you want to have your eyes lifted up, come to this passage and read this passage and you will be encouraged. The big picture and God has it all in his hand. It's in control and it's an enormous blessing. Enormous blessing. So he's blessed us, first of all, uh, spiritually blessed us with salvation. Also, he's blessed us with unity. Blessed us with unity. If you'll flip over to chapter 2, I just want to read a couple of verses there. Chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember you that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. You see, the, in the world in which they lived, in Ephesus, in the world at that time, there were basically two types of people. At least anywhere there were Jews, it was a strong distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. And there was a certain antipathy or animosity that they had against one another. And the Jews were God's people. And the Gentiles were outside of God's blessing, were outside of the covenants, were outside of the promise. It was us versus them. And from the Gentiles, these Jews were kind of weird in the things that they did. And they only believed in one God. And everybody else had multiple gods. And they had all these rules. And they, they dressed funny. All kinds of stuff, right? There, were, there was this animosity, this, this distance between them. And when people became Christians even, when a Jew became a Christian and a Gentile became a Christian, in a very real sense and deep down, there's still a divide between the two. They weren't immediately unified. They didn't understand that. They didn't, they didn't know uh, how they could come together or even that they should because they had this old prejudice against one another that they came into the faith with, right? And I love what he says here because Paul is writing to a church that is part Jewish and part Gentile in a city that had Jews and Gentiles in the Roman world. And so there's this strong distinction there's this strong divide between them. But he says, remember that at that time, you Gentiles, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. It's sounding pretty bleak for the Gentiles, having no hope and without God in the world. And so you were completely separated and you were outside of the covenant and you were not included. There was a great distinction, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He's talking about this distinction that, that exists, used to exist between the two, this prejudice that's there. It's been done away with in Christ. The two have been made one. Christ is your peace. Where there used to be hostility, there's peace. Where there used to be division, there's unity. That's what he has brought. And he continues on in verse uh, chapter 3 and verse 10. He says this, God did all of this, bringing the two together and putting them together to make them one so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, think about that again. That's a purpose statement. That's a purpose statement of why God does this stuff. And it's a big purpose statement, Right? Look at it again. God did this, chapter 3 and verse 10, so that through the church, that is the uniting of Jew and Gentile together, putting them together in Christ, everything uh, made one in Christ, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to whom? To the church? To the watching world? To, to whom? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Not kings and governors. To the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. The idea is that it's not just that the world is watching. The cosmos is watching. I don't know who these people are, these beings are exactly, but they're, they're spiritual, they're, they're probably angelic, uh, enormous. Not all of them are good. They're probably good and evil mixed in there. But it's the spirit world. It's the... It's the angels, it's, it's Satan and his minions, and it's all of the holy angels looking on at this world, looking on at what God has done. And he says, God did all of this unifying for the purpose of putting us on display before that watching group saying, look, here's my wisdom. I took people who were divided and I united them. I took people who were hostile with one another. I took people who were far off and not a part of my community and I made them a part of my community and I put them together in Christ who is their peace. That's enormous. God's purpose statement of why he did this, us. That's a big purpose. That's a purpose that's beyond us. It's enormous. But unity is key. Unity is crucial. 
He will say elsewhere in the book that we are actually members of one another. Members of one another. So we are spiritually blessed with salvation. We're spiritually blessed with unity where there used to be division. There used to be disunity. Now there is unity and also blessed us with new life. The beginning of chapter 2, as, as you know, is one of my favorite places in the book. Actually, I read it to the high school group again this morning in Sunday school class. I, I, I can't go a week without reading it to somebody. I think it's just so powerful. But I will read you a shorter version of chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And he goes on and he spells out kind of what that's like. But the point is you were dead. And you kind of liked it that way. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together in Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So we have been spiritually blessed with new life. We were dead. We were separate, separated from him. We were gladly following after the ruler of this world. We were directly at enmity with God. We were rebels against him. You think about being, being a rebel against your government. If they find you, they won't treat you well. If they catch you, you're going to die. And God hunted down those rebels who were dead, who were rebellious against him, who were his enemies. He hunted them down. And he gave them new life. He gave them new life. That, that should strike us. And it strikes me even this morning talking about it. That's the crux of the gospel right there. The gospel is not, hey, toe the line. The gospel is not do these things and then as a reward you will receive this thing. That's not the gospel. The gospel is this right here. You were dead and God's enemy and God hunted you down like the dog you are and he made you alive and made you his friend. By grace you've been saved through faith. That's the crux of this message. That is the power of the gospel and that is the grace of God and that is a massive, massive spiritual blessing that we have is new life where there was death and corruption, and decay, and hatred of God, and enmity towards God, and He has given us new life. So that's what we've been blessed with, salvation, unity, new life. What does that new life involve? What is this new life that we have in Christ? What, what are the consequences? What does it look like in our lives? Well, first of all, it involves loving, and it involves submitting. Several different passages there. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Really, you'll find these, this idea of loving one another and submitting to one another. It's a recurring theme throughout chapters 4 and 5 and 6. Remember, the first three chapters are predominantly doctrine. He's unpacking truths of the gospel, truths about God, truths about who we are. And then he comes to chapter 4 and he starts unpacking, okay, therefore, that's what this means in our lives, the practical working out in our lives that's what it means and so that's what he's he's doing here we find ourselves right in the middle of that in the beginning of chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 and he says therefore in light of this new life the fact that we've received this new life be imitators of god as beloved children and walk in love as christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to god He continues on towards the end of chapter 5. Not only love each other, because what does that look like? You know, he talks about kindness. He talks about the way we speak to each other. Right? There's a, there's a, there's a level of patience with one another. Not bitterness. Not, not being sharp with each other. There's a gentleness with the way we talk with each other. That's a little bit of what love looks like. But then he continues on talking about submission, Right? The whole, um, the end of chapter 5, starting at verse 21 and all the way through uh, 6, 9, right? We preached on that for several weeks, but he talks about there in verse 21 of chapter 5, he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he says, he says, wives, submit to your husbands and husbands, 
Love your wives. And children, obey your parents. And parents, this is how you treat your children. Slaves and masters, this is how you relate to one another. There's a submission involved there. And it's not a submission because of the husband to the wife, uh, of the wife to the husband, for example, because the husband's a great guy. There's a submission there out of reverence for Christ. It's motivated by what's, who is in the wife. Right? It's, it's motivated by this relationship with Christ that the wife submits to her husband, that the children submit to their parents, that, that slaves submit to masters. It's because of who we are in Christ and what, what he's done for us. It changes our mindset. You see, we, we as Americans, and Canadians too, but she, she's not here today, but we as Americans, we demand our rights. It's my right to have such and such, right? And we see that increasing more and more in our culture. All of a sudden, people think they have rights to do something that didn't, that no one ever 30 years ago would have thought someone had a right to do, right? So it's, it's getting more and more that way. That, and really, so often, it's about me and what I want, right? And it, when we come into Christ, when we, when we are saved, when we have that new life that he talks about in chapter 2, all of a sudden, things change. And it's not about me anymore. And it's not about what I can get out of you. Or what I can get from you. Nor is it about me protecting myself from you. It's about me being in submission to Christ. Me loving him and understanding his love for me. More to the point. Governs how I relate to you. Governs how I love you. Because I was dead. In my trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2. Just like you. I don't have any leg up on you. Nothing like that. It completely changes the way we relate to one another. And so new life in Christ is characterized by our love for one another, our patience with one another, our bearing with one another, not thinking more highly of ourselves. And it's characterized by our submission to one another. Right? It's a massive new thing about what it means to be involved, to be, to be in this new life that we have. But he goes on. There's more involved in new life. He also talks about putting off sinful behavior. He talks about it quite a deal, actually. Chapter 4, 25 through 5, 14. There's a big section in there where he talks about what it means to put off sinful behavior. And I, I'll summarize it for you. I put it in bullet points, and it's about, I don't know, eight bullet points here. It involves speaking truth to one another. Don't sin when you're angry. Right? He, he doesn't say don't ever be angry, but he says be angry and don't sin. So be careful about anger and don't sin. Don't steal. I mean, these are practical outworkings of what it means to have new life in Christ. Speak only what will build other people up. Boy, it's tempting to tear down. You know that time when someone says something or does something and you've got a really good zinger that you just kind of really wish you could really throw at them? Don't do that. Build them up instead. Build them up instead. Speak only what will build others up. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. When he says to stop doing something, stop doing something. When he convicts you that something is sin, respond in obedience. That's why I prayed what I did before we started this morning. That if the Spirit of God, through His Word, speaks to us something in our own lives that I don't have any idea about, speaks something to you about what you should stop doing, something that you should change in your life, respond in obedience. Not to do so is to ignore the Spirit. Ignore the Spirit. And after a while, you, you, you kind of grieve the Spirit. You've made your heart hard against Him, and, you, and you're not responsive. You get to the point where you don't even really hear what He's saying to you. That's a dangerous place to be. Don't grieve the spirit. And he goes on, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That's an enormous motivator. Husbands and wives, this is the way we should treat each other. You ever just get that grudge against your wife or against your husband? And you just kind of, you know, it kind of wears on you. And you just when... When that button is touched, you're kind of 
you know, you, you're angry, right? You're, you just kind of bear that and you carry it from day after day. And it can start small. And very often, actually, those things start while we're still engaged or even before we're engaged. But then it's kind of cute what, what this person does. And all of a sudden you get married and you realize it doesn't go away, right? It's no longer cute. It's really annoying, right? It becomes, it becomes painful, right? And as you let those things progress, it could have started so small. As you let those things progress, all of a sudden there's massive division between the two of you. Don't talk to each other that way. Treat each other this way. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Why? Just because you're a nice guy? No, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So many times, so many times in my own relationship with my wife, this idea right here helps me to love her and look beyond that thing that, that can be annoying to me. Because I have been forgiven in Christ and I needed it big time. And I know how much I needed it. And I've been forgiven. And so I'll treat my wife with that same grace. He continues on, avoid sexual immorality, avoid impurity, covetousness. And then finally, clean all crudeness from your speech. Just clean it out of there. The way we talk, clean it out. Those are part of what part of the, the things that, involve, uh, that are involved in this new life, putting off sinful behavior. He continues, point C, being filled by the Holy Spirit. And this passage in chapter 5, verses 15 through 21, really hits on this and, and says some really great things about what it means. Before he gets there, though, walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing in the Lord, right? He says, he says in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, being filled by the Holy Spirit. Just try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Be filled by the Spirit and let that impact how you relate with others around you. If you observe in 15 through 21 how much it has to do with your communication with other people, the way you look, look at people, the way you treat people, the way you talk to people, your relationships with one another. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So being filled by the Spirit affects our relationship with each other. Affects our relationship. And just like the Ephesian church that had these deeply rooted, I mean, centuries deeply rooted uh, divides, disunities within their midst. And he says, when you're filled with the Spirit, the way you're going to treat each other is going to be entirely different. That divide is gone. You're going to overlook that. Because you Jews also needed forgiveness in Christ. You Gentiles also needed forgiveness in Christ. We get to be in Christ not because we're a Jew or a Gentile. Or because of something we did. We get to be in Christ because of what he's done. We are unified in him. We've been forgiven. It changes the way we relate to each other. Well, similarly, in our day, we have different divides, right? In our part of the world, Jew-Gentile is not the massive division, not the massive distinction that there is or the disunity, right? We don't, we don't tend to fight over those things. If it happens in here, I, I have never heard it, right? We have other distinctions. We have other things that divide things that we, that we bring in from our past, things that we value and we really don't value those other people who don't value that same thing. Certain traditions that we have, certain, certain things that we like or don't like or tastes that we have. Uh, maybe it's financial distinctions. Maybe, it's, maybe there's, dis, there's disunity amongst those who, the haves and the have-nots. Or We have all different potential uh, opportunities for disunity in our midst. In Christ those are meaningless. We set those aside. And if I really have an issue with people who like the color red, I don't know. If I really have an issue with these people, the fact that I'm in Christ and have been forgiven 
and I know where I stand in Christ because of what he's done. And I look at this person who likes red and how could they like red, right? And I see that they're forgiven in Christ also. And that gracious work God did on my behalf, he did on their behalf. And I am not any better than them. And it, it paves the way for unity in our midst, for unity in our midst. Now, I'm not saying do away with, with uh, things that are important. We need to stand for things that are important. We need to know what we believe about different things. But there comes a point at which we need to pursue those things and the unity that is found in knowing we are in Christ, knowing that we are in Christ. We're unified in him. So this new life in Christ involves loving and submitting to one another, involves putting off sinful behavior, right? It involves looking at one another in a different way, being filled by the Spirit. And thirdly, Ephesians talks a lot about the fact that we are firmly established. That concept is in there again and again, firmly established by what God has done in our lives. First of all, we're gifted, right? We're gifted. And I want to, as I was writing this, I was thinking about the gifts of God. There's the, you know, we have, we're going to get to, you know, the different gifts that God has given us, the apostles and the prophets and the teachers and evangelists and all that kind of stuff and how he's built this up. And, but then the, the, what's the most important gift we start chapter two and verse eight. Here's the most important gift for by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And that's where we start. That's where we start is the grace of God, that gift in our lives that he would bring salvation to us. That's where we begin. And so we are a gifted people in that sense because God has given us this gift of salvation. We are alive in Christ. We are forgiven in Christ. We are united with him in Christ. But he goes on and he says, but... Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure. This is in chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of God's gift. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You see, God didn't just make us one in Christ and then put us down in a, in a Petri dish and then just stand back and wait to see what would grow and what would happen. Right? Maybe it would explode, right? Or maybe, maybe something great would grow or maybe it would turn into a monster. That's not what he did. When God saved us, he worked all this work of salvation and he put us together. He united us in Christ. And then not only that, but he gifted each individual person in a special way. Ephesians doesn't go into it a ton about what those ways might be. But my encouragement here, my encouragement for each of you is that if you are in Christ and you are a part of this church... God has equipped you with some kind of gifting. You have something to contribute that God has put there. And so we are the poorer for lacking your contribution. I don't even know what your contribution might be. I don't, I don't know what you might pitch in. I can look around the room and I can see very specific things that I know people have contributed, different, different ways they've used God's gifting in their own life to, to, to pitch in, to make the body of Christ grow and build itself up the way it does. But I, I don't know what that is for everybody. And there might be, there might be someone who's sitting there thinking, I, you know, I just, I don't know what I could really, what do I have to offer? Well, I don't know what you have to offer. God has put something in you to offer. So get involved in some way. Be in relationship with each other in such a way that we can invest in one another. Very often, that's what the gifting looks like, is someone who has a gift to be able to listen. I'm not that person, by the way. Uh, yeah, people don't come to me to tell me their woes. It just doesn't happen. But some of you are, are gifted with that. And you find people coming to you and bringing their issues to you, not because they're gossiping with you, not because you're pursuing that at all, but because you love them and you will draw out their hurt. You will draw out what is there and talk to them they end up being healed as a result of that. Think about the, the building up that happens in our body when that happens. Those kind of conversations, those are, those are good things. So I don't know what the gifting is exactly, but God has given you gifting. Not only that, not, not only has he given each member some sort of gifting to be able to contribute to the building up of the body so that it builds itself up, but he has also given, 
apostles and prophets and evangelists and teachers, pastors to do this work, to, to give us the instruction that we need so that we would be better equipped to do those things. Ephesians is, is uh, um, very powerful. If you look at the middle of chapter 4, I love the way he builds this argument. Chapter 4, and I'm going to start in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Right? So he has, he has given the body those people who can help to develop those gifts that you have to bring them to flourish so that they can bear fruit in the congregation. There's instruction from God's word. There's instruction for how to walk with Christ and those sort of things that, uh, that these gifts, these apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, pastors, that they give, build you up. And here's, here's where it gets really fascinating. I'll continue on uh, verse 13 until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's, that's pretty big. He expects us to grow in such a way so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, again, here's gifting, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God has designed the church and gifted the church in such a way that we, by God's working in here, possess what it takes for us to grow in maturity, for us to grow up into the likeness of Christ, to become more and more like him personally and in our congregation. He's given us what is required. He's gifted us in that way. That's encouraging to me because we don't have to outsource or we don't, we don't need something, some other gift from God that he would give us. And if only he would give us that gift, then, man, we would really be running. He's given it to us. He's given it to us. And so our responsibility as the body, as it says here, when each part is working properly, is to work together to build up the body so that it grows and becomes stronger, becomes healthier, becomes better at evangelism, becomes better at dealing with sin, becomes better at loving one another, becomes better at worshiping God together because we're built up with the gifts that God has given us. So gifted, and I've moved in already to my second one here, built up. God gave us these gifts and and these ministers so that we, the body, could be built up and strengthened until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Right? The body, when all of its parts are working properly, has everything it needs. By God's Spirit, I'm not intending to be independent of God here at all. He has designed it in such a way that when we work by His Spirit, we are equipping one another to make the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, that's encouraging and it's also challenging because as it turns out, I'm a part of this body. And I think, man, what's, what's my responsibility? What's my role? Well, one of my roles is as pastor, as teacher, connect group leader and working with youth. Those are some of my roles. But what about relationally? I I don't know exactly. There might be some more things that, that some more ways God might want me to function to contribute to the body being built up. And that's probably true of you too. I don't know what your function is exactly, but God has gifted you. So... We are firmly established as gifted and as built up and as armored. Armored. Because it turns out we are in a battle. All of this stuff that we're talking about being built up is not happening in in a vacuum, nor is it really happening in a friendly place. Right? For a long time in this country, it's been very friendly towards us. It's been very accepting of Christians. That's changing. You can see that changing. We are becoming more like the rest of the world. You realize the last couple hundred years in this country have been the exception for the history of the world and things are starting to look normal again. We are in a battle and God has equipped us with that. Right? He says that, uh, he says, put on the whole armor of God, chapter 6 and verse 
verse 11. I'll start with 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What, why are we worried about the devil? Why? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not the people around us who are the enemy. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There are those coming against us who are not other people. It's spiritual forces coming against us to do battle against us. They hate us because we are God's children. And they will do anything to trip us up. And they will very often use people to do that. But our battle is not with those people. Our battle is with spiritual forces. And so how do we do that? How can we combat these spiritual forces? Well, God has equipped us for that. He's given us the belt of truth. He's given us the breastplate of righteousness. He's given us shoes of the readiness given by the gospel of peace. He's given us the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And as what he mentioned last week, a key part to all of this, he has given us prayer, to be watchful in prayer in this battle. And with these protections, we can can and should stand firm, being strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might to stand against the schemes of the devil. So, I said we would land on the last few verses. We've covered the major themes of Ephesians, right? So that's like, it's kind of like background, right? And we get to, to where we are right here. Well, if you look at the end of chapter 6, the end of the book here, Paul's writing this letter to the Jewish and Gentile church that's in Ephesus. He hasn't said anything about himself. And so he's going to send Tychicus. Look at verse 21. So that you may also know how I am in what I'm doing. And Paul, by the way, was in prison. Uh, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. He's going to deliver this letter. Ask him all the questions you want about my situation. He'll tell you. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So Paul's interested in them being encouraged, not just taught, not just trained, but encouraged. He wants their hearts to be encouraged. And look how he goes here. Last two verses. Peace be to the brothers. This kind of sounded, when I first read it, I thought, is this poetry or what's going on here? Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. And so, as we conclude today, I want to draw your, if, if you underline in your Bible, uh, or maybe you could do it in your notes there, there are just a, a few words in these last couple of verses that I want to underline and draw your attention to because as I was reading these last couple of verses, and I couldn't really figure out what Paul was trying to say. He's hitting on themes that have been throughout the book and he's reminding us to, oh yeah, that thread, draw this thread together and that thread and hold on to those things. That's how we remember what's in Ephesians. That's how we uh, retain the impact, right? So I want to draw our attention to the word peace, right? He starts off verse 23, peace be to the brothers. That's a relatively normal greeting, right? First of all, it's more of a Hebrew greeting than a Greek greeting. That is, it's more of a Jewish greeting than a Gentile greeting. It's used by the Gentiles, but it's the idea of shalom. It's the, it's the way Jews greet each other. It's the, it's the, the wish, the desire, the prayer for peace, the blessing of peace on the person. So I think this is a nod here to the Jews in the congregation. Later on, he's going to say grace, which is our normal one. He's going to start off 24 with grace, but, but he's tipping his hat to the Jews and he's talking again about this being united. But what is peace in Ephesians? What is peace in Ephesians? Well, again and again, it's this idea that God has taken two disparate people and joined them together in peace and in love. This divide that has been there for hundreds and thousands of years, the enmity between the two, he has healed that in Christ. And he did that on purpose. Ephesians is going to say again and again, he's actually going to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And so this divide he has taken away, that old dividing line no longer exists. Peace, he has brought peace and he's 
wishing peace upon us. And that's what I, that's what I pray for you and for us. I don't know what dividing lines we have. I've seen a couple of dividing lines. I'm not sure quite what they are. Those dividing lines, he intends to get rid of for us to be unified in Christ. And I think there are ways that we can pursue greater unity. So there's never an idea in our mind of an us versus them. That doesn't exist in Christ. Second word I want you to underline or make note of is love. Love is mentioned like three times in here. Love. So what is love in Ephesians? Well, this is the love that spurred God to show us such great mercy. Remember, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Ephesians chapter 2. That's why he made us alive together in Christ. He was spurred on by his love. And we, remembering how we have benefited by his love and his mercy in our own lives, are therefore to treat other people with the same love. He says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. There are times I struggle to love people, even some of you people. And in Christ, knowing what he has done for me, I will work to love you. And I will remind myself that just as I needed great forgiveness to be in Christ, you too. And he has shown that grace. There's nothing, I'm nothing better than you. I didn't owe less. I didn't need to be forgiven of less. I know what I, I, know what I need forgiveness for. And he gave it. And so I'm going to treat you with grace. I'm going to treat you with love. Another word is faith. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith. What's faith in Ephesians? What's faith in Ephesians? Well, usually in Ephesians, it refers to our trust in Christ. And 2, 8 through 10 really spells that out. It tells us that it's a big part of the gift from God that is salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And it continues. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are saved through faith. Elsewhere in Ephesians, through faith in him we have boldness and we have access to God with confidence. Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, according to Ephesians. And faith is a unifying factor in the church. So faith is a big deal, and it's a big deal in Ephesians. And so as I'm almost wrapped up, i got one word left. I'm not just going to say one more word. I'm going to keep talking. But I have, I have one, more, one more key word that you're going to underline. I'm not there yet. But this issue of faith. We've talked about the grace of God this morning. And, and Tim started talking about it. And we've talked about where we started. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Talked about the work of God in sending his son that we could have forgiveness, that we could be redeemed, that we could be bought back, that we could be made alive in Christ. That is an offer that he makes to you. That's an offer that he makes to all of us. And it requires faith. It's not just enough for you to know that or to be able to recite it or to leave church having a slightly good feeling because you got to hear that God does good stuff. Act on it. Put your faith in Christ or it remains a gift unopened. It remains not your own. Respond in faith. Put your trust in Christ. Stop trusting in whatever you were trusting in or Stop ignoring spiritual reality and your own guilt before God. Act on it. Respond by putting your faith in Christ. That looks different for different people. Some people get together with another person and pray together and express faith in Christ with another person right there. For me, it happened 23 years and one day ago on the baseball field right here in town. No one knew I was praying, but I knew the grace of God. Someone had shared the gospel with me and I responded in faith by praying to Jesus, save me, I'm a sinner. 
Come into my life and be my Lord. I want to follow you and not my sin. Express faith in Christ. Trust in Him. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your unbelief. Turn away from your your ignorance or the things that you've been following and turn towards Him and trust in Him. I I pray that people would do that this morning. That there would be people who would be uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, but God made them alive together in Christ today. I pray that that would be for some of you. The final word is grace. Ephesians is all about grace. Look at how he starts 24. Grace be with you all, with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. It's the fitting end to this book, God's grace. It started off, remember, remember chapter 1, talking about what God had done? From before history, he started working to save you. And it will continue working into eternity. That's God's work. That is the grace of God to do that. I want to finish on that note. Won't you trust in him right now? For those who haven't. Won't you put away your stubbornness and your arguments and respond to his call to put your trust in him? He is the only one, the only thing, the only one worthy of that trust. Stop fighting against him and instead surrender to him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the huge testimony that Ephesians is of your grace. Huge, huge testimony of God's grace, of you working on our behalf, not because we were special, not because we deserved it, not because of anything that we had done, no merit of our own, no beauty of our own, nothing that would, that would make us desirable to you or anything like that. You just decided to do it for your own glory again and again and again, we're reminded in Ephesians. Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your grace that opened my eyes 23 years ago to your work, to salvation in Christ. And I thank you that you have gifted us. I thank you that you have equipped us that you have called us to unity. You've called us to love one another, submit to one another. Your work in our lives. But Lord, I pray as we close the book of Ephesians today, I pray that the grace of God would impact the lives in this room who don't know you. I pray that you would make yourself glorious to them and that they would respond by crying out to you, I'm a sinner I need forgiveness. Please forgive me. Jesus, be my Lord. I don't want to follow some other Lord anymore. I don't want to be my own Lord. I pray that you would do that even now, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your working in our lives. Thank you for Resurrection Sunday coming up this week and for Good Friday. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much.